I want you to take that image, that picture of Jesus you have in your mind this morning, and just erase it. Just pretend that you are starting with a blank canvas. You have never heard of this Jesus person. You know, you guys, I think I made a mistake. We, uh, we bought a chicken. We bought a chicken so we could get some eggs and, uh, you know, just have a little of that farmhouse experience. Thought it would be cool for the kids. But it turned out it's an evil chicken. It only lays deviled eggs. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next episode. I can't remember what number this is, but you're here, and I'm here, and that's great. Let's get into our joy, junk, and Jesus. Uh, by the way, I'd love to hear what your joy, junk, and Jesus is. So when you hear this, uh, email me uh, at the podcast, manafoodforthought at gmail.com, or if you know me personally, text me, shout out, just say, hey, was giving you a listen, wanted to let you know what mine are. I love to hear those updates from you. And remember, you can share this on social media at Man of Food for Thought on Instagram is the best way. You can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Got all of that out of the way, but wanted to remind you of those things, friends. So my joy this week is that um, a lot of great stuff has happened, um, more Jesus moment related. But tonight um, we get to see Jenna, our, my previous co-host, and her husband Tony and their kids and get to spend some time with them. Um, having dinner with them. So I'm really looking forward to that. And right after that, I'm going to head up to my old stomping grounds in Lake Arrowhead to see all of my guy friends. And we're just going to spend the night at one of our, um, our, the guys in our group's houses. So that's going to be really great. Um, just to reconnect with them. Not often we get to do that. Uh, junk is that I've been just feeling a lot of heaviness from other people lately. I'm feeling a lot better. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your prayers in that regard. Continue to pray for me. But a lot of conversations I've been having and a lot of just um, even just thinking of people that I haven't even, you know, talked to in a while. I'm just experiencing a lot of their heaviness just in kind of spiritual solidarity. And so definitely praying for them um, in that regard. And it's just kind of weighing on me a little bit. But um, my Jesus moment is that um, so in the past 11 days or for a span of 11 days um, this past week, I gave nine talks in 11 days and it was, it seems like insane. And it was insane when I realized what I'd done to myself. Like, why did I schedule this this way? But it worked out so beautifully because I think, I don't know, I just really feel like the Lord has called me into the gift of teaching and into that charism of really teaching and pastoring people. And, um, as a charism, not as like a, I'm going to be a priest or anything, but, um, I think that gift that I've honed in that regard of speaking has really just been given opportunities to um, serve others and do so in like very supernaturally abundant ways where it's obvious that it's not me doing anything. I just show up, try to be faithful, try to pray and discern, and the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And that it's really beautiful to just witness that and to almost like take a step back in my own mind while I'm speaking and just let God take over and be like, wow, this is so awesome that I get to do this that people are encountering Jesus, and it's just a really beautiful gift. So that's how I've encountered Jesus. Again, let me hear your George Young Jesus. Would love to hear it. So in the meantime, you are here for our third of three-part series on Scripture. I Hopefully hopefully, this has been inspiring you to get back into the Word, because this is all leading up to um, the kind of debut of the audio of the, the Bible study that I run on a weekly basis, as well as getting back to our normal episodes. And so 
really want to encourage you to be uh, diving into the Word, especially the upcoming Sunday readings or the daily readings, and hopefully these podcasts can help you just get a better understanding of the context of Scripture and what you might be looking for. So this episode uh, was recorded a little while back for our RCIA group. It is on the New Testament, its structure, its themes, how we understand, how it's put together, how we interpret, read, and pray with it, and some things just to keep in mind when you're diving to the New Testament, as well as some places to start. So without further ado, I invite you to listen to this third part of our three-part series on Scripture. Enjoy. So in the center of your tables, there's some resources for this morning, as there usually are. And you'll see uh, a picture on there, which might seem a little bit out of place. Um, But that's a picture of, any guesses? St. Nicholas. Now this is a a picture of St. Nicholas as he was often depicted for many, many generations, many millennia and centuries. Uh, and there's some things that are different than our familiar picture of Santa or of St. Nicholas, right? He's, uh, he's not red and white. He's not very jolly looking. He's not, you know, overweight. Um, he's not with milk and cookies or reindeer, anything like that. Um, anyone know why we have that image that we do today? A little company called Coca-Cola. Hijacked Santa Claus for their own uh, purposes and branded him with their colors and he's been red and white ever since. And I put that image there because I think often we have a hijacked image of Jesus, of the church of the New Testament, that the world is kind of hijacked how we see Jesus, how we see him, how we see church, because we've seen him depicted in all of these different movies, all of these different series, and I think very accurately and refreshingly in the most recent series, The Chosen, which I always recommend, and if you haven't checked it out, please do. But oftentimes, it gives us this maybe distorted image of who God is or who Jesus came to be. And so I want to invite you this morning, as I often do whenever I talk about things that are very familiar, you've probably heard the name Jesus thousands of times in your life. I want you to take that image, that picture of Jesus you have in your mind this morning, and just erase it. Just pretend that you are starting with a blank canvas. You have never heard of this Jesus person. You don't know who he is. You don't know what he looks like, who he is to you, or the purpose of this book, or at least the half of the book that we're talking about this morning, the New Testament, that speaks so much about him. Because so much of what we've heard has been hijacked by culture. We also have to acknowledge the fact that being Catholics, We are in a Christian-founded country, but most of that Christianity was Protestant Christianity. And so a lot of the times we hear Jesus thrown around in cultural religious references, it's often with a Protestant flair or with a different, more fundamentalist interpretation of the New Testament. Now, that's not bad or wrong or evil, but it can distort maybe the way that the Catholic Church in its tradition has presented our Savior to us. And it can sometimes divorce the idea of Jesus from all of these things that we talked about last week in the Old Testament. So this morning, we're not going to so much talk about the content of the New Testament. We're going to talk about the why of the New Testament and the how. How did it all come together? Why do we have what we have? And what is a good thing to keep in mind when we're diving into the New Testament? So remember, New Testament means new covenant. And the First Testament, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is about God choosing a chosen people for himself and the Jewish people to redeem the entire world through. Because remember, the overall message of Scripture is what? Say it with me. God loves us, and he wants to be united with us. I'm going to repeat it over and over again until you can memorize it and say it anytime I ask. The overall message of the Bible, God loves us, and he wants to be united with us. 
He loves us. He created us. And from page three, chapter three of scripture, of salvation history, sin entered the world and all of a sudden God needed a game plan to redeem us. And we talked last week about all these covenants. Remember, that's the key word of the Old Testament, the covenants that God made with us. These exchanges of persons where God says, you are my people and I will bless you in this way as long as you do these things. And though God has always been faithful to his covenants, we constantly break them because we're imperfect. We're sinners. We're human beings. And so what God needed to do is what culminates in the New Testament. He needed to come here on our behalf and be on both ends of that arrangement, on the divine end in heaven and on the earthly end in human form in the person of Jesus Christ to make a once and for all everlasting covenant in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and offering himself on the cross for our sins so that we could finally no longer be separated from him, but we could be back in right relationship with him. That is the whole overarching message of Scripture. And so sometimes scripture, as I've said, many times can be intimidating. We open it, we see a verse, maybe we're trying to interpret it, figure out what it means. But if we lose sight of that overall image, then we can lose sight of what it is that we're, we're reading and what it is we're meant to be receiving. That God loves us and he wants to be united with us. So every time you're reading scripture, especially the New Testament, read it through that lens. How is this showing me how much God loves me? How is this compelling me to realize how much God wants to be united with me? How I'm supposed to live my life in such a way that I will respond to his grace and be in right relationship with him? That is what the New Testament is all about. Now, an interesting thing about the New Testament, Matthew was the first book in the New Testament, but it was not written first. Mark was written earliest. But Matthew was always placed first for two reasons. One, because they thought it was written first for a long time. But two, because it has this very, what might seem like a very boring genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. If you have a Bible, or if you'd like one, there's some over here. And if you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see these names. All of these names of people from salvation history. So-and-so was begot of so-and-so, was born of so-and-so, was born of so-and-so. And a whole chapter all the way getting up to the person of Jesus Christ. You might think, why? Why is this important? Why would we do this? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, the last two books of the Hebrew Bible were First and Second Chronicles, which are full of genealogies, full of the historical record of God, God's chosen people through whom was supposed to come this Messiah, this Messianic ruler in the line of David, in the line of Abraham, who's going to be a prophet like Moses and who is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. That is the key word for the New Testament, kingdom. That Jesus comes as the new king of a new kingdom, but he's not like the kings and kingdoms that we think about when we think of medieval times. It's not like the kings and kingdoms we see in the history of the Old Testament. He's a humble servant king who comes to bring about a new kingdom of heaven and earth. And it's a kingdom for all people, especially those who've been cast out of what was supposed to be that original kingdom. And so that's why he always goes to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the forgotten, the widows like in today's gospel. That is the whole point of what Jesus came to do. So when you see that genealogy in the beginning of Matthew, all these Hebrew people thought that the very last person who was in that line of David was a man named Zerubbabel. If you're looking for baby names in the future, highly recommend Zerubbabel. It rolls off the tongue. So if you don't know who Zerubbabel was, he, after the Jewish people were in exile, he was the one who helped rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they thought he might be the Messiah, but the temple was never restored to its former glory, and they were still kind of waiting and longing. And this kind of lineage got disrupted. And so if you were a Jewish person, and Matthew being a gospel writer who was a Jewish person writing about a faithful Jew, Jesus, to a Jewish audience, begins by saying, so-and-so was born of so-and-so. 
was born of stone. So, and I, so I, this is maybe a reference that only I will appreciate, but I don't know if any of you watch professional wrestling. Um, but I've watched professional wrestling since I was a kid. I don't watch it so much anymore, but like WWE, Worldwide Entertainment Wrestling, okay? So my favorite wrestler for the longest time was this wrestler called The Undertaker, and which is kind of ironic because I'm Catholic and he has this very dark, like occultist imagery to his entrance, but it was this very like amazing entrance where like all the lights would shut and then you'd hear this like boom, like this bell, and then all these like funeral pyre fires would show up and he would like come out in a fog machine and be like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be amazing. But the great thing that I loved about wrestling was the, the like drama of it all. And these wrestlers, they go into these, these amazing matches, and then if they lost, or something big and climactic happened, so they would kind of disappear for a while. And The Undertaker, he went through kind of like a revitalization of his character, and then he disappeared for a very long time. And there was this big like anticipated event. Uh, it was like a pay-per-view, like 10, I'm like getting so excited talking about this, nobody else cares about this, but that's okay, I have a microphone, so, um, it's my birthday, so I can do what I want, so anyways, 15, like 15 years later, um, there's this big pay-per-view match, and all of a sudden, like this, 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 something happens, and the lights just shut, and I'm standing, I'm watching this with my, my friend Christian in high school, and I was like, what just happened, and you just hear, I just, I almost like, I was like, I don't know, like a teenage girl at a Justin Bieber concert. I was like so like flush and I was like, no, it can't be. And he came out as the old original Undertaker, like not his new kid, but it, and all the flames and everything. And I was like, no way. So a Jewish person reading the first chapter of Matthew, they would have had like the same experience. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot Zerubbabel. And he begot, and they'd be like, oh, there was more. And then all of a sudden was born a man named Jesus. And he is the one who has been promised. That is just the artistry of how that old, that New Testament was put together. Just to bring about that beauty. So when you open to Matthew chapter 1, let's say you want to read the New Testament, you're like, oh, boring genealogy. Recognize that without the Old Testament, it doesn't make sense. As we said last, last week, the, the old is revealed in the new and the new is hidden in the old. And so we cannot understand these without each other. And so that set the stage for the entire New Testament. This is the promised Messiah. Just like in the covenant with Adam and Eve, Jesus is the new Adam, the new man, the firstborn of a new creation. Just like God made a covenant with Noah to redeem the earth, this man, Jesus, was the new Noah to come redeem the world from sin and never destroy it again, always be with us. In fact, that's the last line of the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Just like God made a covenant with Abraham, who was the father of many nations through whom would be blessing and redeem the whole world. Jesus comes as the new Abraham, the new father of a new kingdom to redeem the entire world. Just as God made a covenant with Moses, the prophet, the lawgiver, Jesus brings a new law when he gives his Sermon on the Mount to come as a new prophetic voice to redeem the entire world, lead them into a new promised land of heaven to open and proclaim the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Just as God made a covenant with David, with King David, through whom a messianic figure would come. Jesus is the new king of a new kingdom, greater than King David, to come and build that new kingdom on heaven and earth eventually one day for us all to live in union with him. So Jesus is the culmination of all these promises of the Old Testament. So when we look at the New Testament, it's laid out in a certain structure. And I have some 
a little map of the New Testament here on this first page of these resources, and a little more in-depth map of the four Gospels. I'm not going to go too much into this, just kind of something that you can use. And then a little bit about when these books of the New Testament were written, and a little guide on how you can uh, read the book of Revelation, uh, some of the symbolism there. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's just look at the New Testament as a whole. How do we have this? Why do we have this? So first of all, we have the four Gospels. Now, the word gospel means good news. And really, this is the good news according to certain people. Okay, so it's interesting that we have four of these, right? Why not just one? The gospel of Luke is the most complete beginning to end. We have the birth narrative of Jesus, and we have a whole lot more of post-resurrection accounts in Luke. We have a whole lot more of Jesus' interactions with Gentiles and things like that. It's a very complex gospel. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So it's actually one long scroll all about Jesus and the early church. So why not just have that? Well, it's because these Gospels were written for specific purposes, for specific people. So Mark was a traveling companion of St. Peter. So this is sometimes nicknamed the Gospel of St. Peter, because Peter had to dictate all this to Mark. Mark was not one of the apostles, uh, very unlikely that he was one of the disciples even, did not even know Jesus, but he heard all of this, and he collected all these eyewitness testimonies and put them together and presented this to a Roman audience. So you see a lot of imagery in the Gospel of Mark, Son of Man, Son of God, all images that were used about the Old Testament, but also about Roman rulers. A nickname for Roman rulers was Son of God. You would call Caesar Son of God. And so Mark presents Jesus as an even greater ruler than any other ruler on earth, to present in a new kingdom, a new church, not this secular worldview or the secular church of the Roman Empire. But Matthew was a Jew writing about a Jew to a Jewish audience. So he's writing to a Jewish audience. So in the Gospel of Matthew, you have all these references to Old Testament prophecies, to Jewish feasts, and things that Jesus fulfills in the Old Testament that were promised about the Messiah. Luke was a Gentile, and he had a conversion. He was a non-Jew. He had a conversion. He was a traveling companion of St. Paul, also never knew Jesus, whereas Matthew was an apostle, was journeying with him for three years. So Luke... Being also a physician, he was a doctor, he's a patron saint of doctors and people in the medical field, he includes the most miracles than any other gospel because these are things he was obviously, as a physician, as a man of science, he was fascinated by. And being a Gentile includes the most interaction with Gentile people. Those three gospels are called the synoptic gospels, which means same or similar. They include a lot of the same things. Mark wrote first. And then Matthew and Luke basically plagiarized Mark, took a lot of his stuff, and put their own spin for their different audiences to say, okay, this urban kind of gospel for all people, let's present it to a Jewish audience in Matthew and to a Gentile audience in Luke. And then John comes along, and he writes this gospel to proclaim the divinity of God, that he is the Son of God. That he is not just a man who came to fulfill these messianic prophecies, but he is also divine, the incarnate God-man. And so all four of these have a different purpose. And so when you read them, you might hear things that might seem a little contradictory, a little different than each other. And there's a reason for that, because the author is presenting Jesus in such a way to communicate who he was and what he did to the particular audience he's writing to. The genre of these is called a bioi, or a, where we get the word bio. And so it's for that reason that we don't have like a, a huge amount of information about Jesus from the age of 2 to 30. We have one instance when he's 12 years old and he's lost in the temple. Because in a bio at that time, you would only write these about very affluent and important political figures. 
and you would only write about the most significant parts of their life. So their birth, maybe a little bit about their family, and whatever significant event that they did, and then how they died. And that's exactly what we have from Jesus. And him being a poor carpenter from a backwater town, if he really wasn't the son of God and didn't really have this historical following, there's no reason why we should have even one of these let alone four. And there are even more Gospels that were written that didn't end up making it into the New Testament because they were written far later and didn't have that authenticity of being written within the first generation of Christ by people that could be verified as apostolic in origin. And so we couldn't know for certain that they were true. So they're still around. You can find them and read them. And you'll read them and you're like, this is a little weird. And that's why you know it's not in the New Testament because there's things that are off about them. But that's why we have these four Gospels. And Luke also gave us this book, a narrative book, a historical book called the Acts of the Apostles. This details after Jesus died and rose from the dead, sent his Holy Spirit upon the early church. What was it that they did? And we see a little bit of them kind of coming into their own, understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, growing the church, setting up an institutional hierarchical church from the beginning with deacons, with priests, with bishops. Sounds a lot like the Catholic Church. And then Peter spreading this message to the Gentiles and that getting even more uh, exponentially done through the person of St. Paul, who has this radical conversion. Paul, who used to be named Saul, who went by his Hebrew name, who was a killer of Christians. He was persecuting Christians for the Romans, had this radical conversion and became one of the greatest missionary um, apostles, disciples of Jesus Christ the world has ever known, and went on four missionary journeys to spread the church all throughout Africa, Asia, uh, and the Middle East and Europe. That is what the Acts of the Apostles is all about. And then we move into this section of letters in the New Testament, many of which were written by Paul. Uh, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, those are all written by Paul to specific churches that he built or visited or that he knew of because he had friends that he had done ministry with that worked in these areas. And so he would hear about different things going on in those local places, in those churches, and he would write a letter to encourage or to teach. Here's how you deal with the specific issues that are going on in your church. So Romans was to the church in Rome. Corinthians were letters to the church in Corinth. First and second Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. So these are all places. Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, all of these early churches. Paul writes these letters to say, hey, these unique problems that you're having and what it looks like to build a church, to follow Jesus, to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, here's how you deal with these specific issues. And he encourages them, admonishes them, challenges them to meet this great challenge. And then he writes certain letters to individuals who are bishops or ministers. First and second Timothy, who our church is named for, that is St. Timothy, they're letters specifically to him. And then to Titus and Philemon, these letters encouraging them in their own specific trials, roles, or the duties that they had wherever they were doing ministry, or whatever context Paul knew them in. Then we have some other general letters. Hebrews was often attributed to Paul, but it's very different in writing style. It was a general letter, and all of these are general letters one to the overall Hebrew church, so the Christians that were Jewish in nature, showing and reinforcing, very much like the Gospel of Matthew did, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Jewish people, archetypes, promises, messianic prophecies. And then letters from the Apostle James, from the Apostle Peter, from the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, and from the Apostle Jude, all to different communities to be circulated around the early church world to be read at Mass 
to encourage the people, this is what it looks like to live. And so this New Testament was readings associated with the New Covenant, the New Covenant being the Eucharist. So when people would gather for the Eucharist, as they did every single day or week after that Last Supper, as Jesus told them to, they would read these scripture readings, or they would recount the teachings of Jesus. And eventually those were written down so that they could be done every single time we had Mass. And that has continued week after week, year after year, century after century to today. And a lot of the things that we do at our Sunday Mass were done in the early centuries. We have an eyewitness account from a, a nun named Egeria in the year 400 about a procession with incense of people chanting psalms to a cave where they would say Mass, break bread, sing psalms, exchange signs of peace, acknowledge their sins in public like we do when we say, I confess to you, Almighty God. What do we say? You know, the confidior at the beginning of Mass. I wasn't prepared to, uh, to uh, recite that. You know, you get caught off guard and you like forget the Our Father or something like that. That just happened. Um, so, but we have those eyewitness accounts. This is how it's always been. Now, we might shift the order or the language or some practical things of how we do that. But the content, the overall things that we do at Mass, that has all been the same since the very beginning. And these readings that we have in the New Testament, these were the things that were read. Now, the very last book, the book of Revelation, this is always the fun one that people try to solve or have questions about. Now, the book of Revelation is not a prophecy about the end of the world necessarily. So it doesn't, you cannot look, read the book of Revelation and get out a calculator and determine the world is going to end on this day. No, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John when he was in exile toward the end of his life based on the series of visions that he had on this victorious vision of God over evil. And it's believed to be a prophecy about the fact uh, or a, an image of the fact that God is still victorious even though evil is going to take over, meaning when the temple was finally destroyed in Jerusalem in the year 70 by Rome. And so it's meant to be a book of promise, of hope, for those to know that when evil rears its ugly head, like in the form of a dragon in Revelation chapter 12, that God is still going to be victorious in the end. So there's a whole sheet in there about symbols and symbolism and numbers in the book of Revelation because it was a writing style at the time. It was called apocryphal literature when you would write with a lot of symbolism, a lot of different numerological meanings so that you could convey a certain point. It was almost like... Um, I don't know, kind of the sci-fi of the time or something like that. It was an interesting type of literary genre that was very popular. So it's not this calculable thing to determine this is when the world is going to end. We do know that Jesus is going to come back because he promises that in the Gospels. But this is a prophetic book in a time of intense persecution to help encourage the church. And so we can read the New Testament with a different lens, but to benefit from it still, because are we still not facing times of persecution, my brothers and sisters? Are we still not facing different sufferings, different difficulties for trying to stand fast to our own faith, to be set apart in a world that maybe doesn't understand the ministry and the words of Jesus? We can still read those narrative books about this real historical figure. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than we do of Homer's Odyssey. Did you know that? We have maybe 650 manuscripts of Homer's Odyssey. We have over 5,000 archaeological manuscripts of the New Testament. And yet there are people who will still profess, very smart people will profess that these things didn't happen, that Jesus, this person, wasn't even real, that he wasn't the Son of God. My brothers and sisters, there's only one person in the history of the world who has founded a church and claimed to be God himself of any major religion, and that was Jesus Christ. 
Now that demands a response from us, an answer. And we have the blessing of the New Testament before us to be able to dive in and say, is this person who he says he was? Because if a person literally rose themselves from the dead, if that we can prove that, if we can know that to be true, everything else must be true. Because that is a ridiculous assertion otherwise. There's no reason to believe in Jesus, in the Catholic Church, or in anything if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if he did, it's reason to believe in all of it. It's the central truth, the central supernatural event of our faith. And the witness of the New Testament existing, of the 12 apostles carrying that truth to their graves through persecution, through torture, being told, hey, if you just recant, if you just say this was a lie, then you can live. And none of them, none of them recanted. And we have all of this manuscript evidence saying this man really, truly existed, claimed to be God, proved it by rising from the dead. And we can still benefit from that by knowing him and loving him and seeking how we can serve him. And when we doubt and when we fail and we don't know how to live a spirit-led life, we look to the examples of the apostles and we see how they did it in Acts of the Apostles. We have different issues that we're facing in our own life and discipleship. We read those letters and we see, oh, they were facing the same issues. They have the same problems. This is how I can follow Jesus. This is how I can follow in their great footsteps. The New Testament is a love letter. And if Revelation had never been written, you and I would be in this book because it would still be being written week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, the annals of this church that Jesus Christ founded. We are here called to this moment as they were 2,000 years ago to respond to these same great truths. And we can come to know them by opening up our New Testament, by getting to know the story of Jesus. And by responding to it as best we can, when we face difficulty, we can look to all of the New Testament to guide us. All of the rest of those letters, the apocryphal and prophetic literature to encourage us in our journey of following him. So I want to encourage you, open the New Testament. Whether it's you read two chapters of a gospel every day and that becomes your prayer, or one chapter, or one section. But we should always be reading a gospel. And as you anticipate the coming, uh, the coming of a new liturgical year in the season of Advent... We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke at all of our Masses, for the most part, in this next whole coming liturgical year. And so it'll be a great time for you to start maybe diving into the Gospel of Luke. And that is the narrative book. If you read the book of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, you would get the whole overall story of the New Testament, and everything else fits in. If you remember that timeline I shared with you last week, those are those two final narrative books. If you read those along with those narrative books from the Old Testament, just picked out those, I think, 13 of all 73 books, you would get beginning to end this whole story of God creating us out of love because he wants to be, what, united with us, and how we failed in that on day one, turned away, and even then on day one, he enacted a plan to redeem us, and that reached its fruitfulness, its culmination, its reality in the person of Jesus Christ. And if he really didn't live and didn't rise from the dead, then this means nothing. But we know that he did because we have the witness of the apostles by their lives. We have 500 eyewitnesses who reported seeing Jesus risen from the dead at a time when you only needed two witnesses to prove in a court of law that something really happened. We have 500 eyewitnesses saying, yes, he rose from the dead. Not one of them changed their story. Not one of them recanted. 5,000 manuscripts. When we read things in high school, it's mandatory reading. We have far less. This is a truth that deserves to be shared, deserves to be believed, deserves to be followed. And we have a responsibility, my brothers and sisters, by being created by God, a God who loves us and wants to be united with us, to know that great story and where we fit in it. And the times we turn away from him, to be called back into right relationship and realize he's already done all the work. He's already died on the cross. He did the hard work. Going to confession is easy. Dying on the cross is not. 
and we can see the beauty of that gift that we have, the reconciliation offered to us, and a life lived in relationship with God, the most beautiful gift that we have, the how-to manual of how to do that, right here in Scripture. If you know me, you know I, I uh, often criticize a brother Christian, Joel Olstein, um, just from some of his theology. But one thing I love that he says is, what does the Bible stand for? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Everyone should be familiar with it. And he has a saying where, like, it says what I am or it says what I say. You know, I don't know if you watch it, but you know what? Go Google it. I messed it up. But it says what we are. It says who we're called to be. And so I want to encourage you, dive into it. Read a little bit of it every day. Get to know the story of Jesus because it's the most important story in the history of the world. And once we dive into it, we'll see it's also our story. And despite our sin and separation with God, God has chosen us to be part of that great story each in a unique and unrepeatable way because he loves each one of us in a unique and unrepeatable way. So I want to encourage you, please, open your Bible. Get to know the story of a God who loves you and will never stop fighting to be united with you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the word. Thank you, God, for all that you do, all the ways that you speak to us, all the things that you've given us, the proof, the opportunities for faith, for love, for relationship with you. Thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the time this week to sit even for five minutes and just get to know your story, to get to know how much you love us. Whether we've read it a thousand times before, we've never even started to crack open those pages and see the love letters of your heart pouring out for us, desiring to be in relationship with us. No matter where we are, no matter what we've done, that you come to us as we are, accept us and love us and bring us along on the journey. Let us never stop seeking you each and every day in your word, in sacrament, in silence, and in community with other people. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that final episode in our scripture series. Again, we'll be back to our normal episodes uh, in the next episode. And remember, the handouts and resources that were referenced in the talk, those will be available in the show notes. So if you're curious about any of that, feel free to click on that link and you can have some additional resources. We'll see you next time. And before then, we will see you in the Eucharist. Thank you.